You would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to begin reading this morning in verse 11 and continue on to verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. He had been talking about uh, the priesthood of Christ, and now in verse 11 he takes a break from that for a little bit, and he says, about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Let's pray together. Our Father, again, we ask for your blessing upon the reading and the preaching of your word. We pray that uh, your word would accomplish all that it is set out to do, that your will would be done, uh, your throne would be restored in our hearts, and that we would gladly... Uh, not only say that we were longing to go to the house of the Lord, but glad that we came. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I was uh, <clears throat> uh, reading something about uh, General Douglas MacArthur recently, World, World War II general, and uh, in his reminiscences, his, his autobiography, he shares that his philosophy of life early on was sort of a fake it till you make it kind of mentality. And so when he was at West Point, uh, he was in a very difficult class uh, that he was taking in, in science, and, and they began to study something of, of Einstein, what would become Einstein's theory of relativity. And he had no idea at all what any of it meant that he was reading. And so he committed the entire chapter to memory. Word for word, he had memorized the exact sayings of, of Einstein and um, when the professor began to ask questions about it, he raised his hand and was able to spout off exactly what Einstein had said. And so the professor then asked him, he's like, do you actually understand this theory? And uh, he unabashedly said, no, sir, not at all. <laughs> and uh, the professor said, uh, well, neither do I, Mr. MacArthur. Section dismissed. Classes ended, you know, in that sense. Uh, there, there is a sense in which uh, we all have a, a problem understanding certain things that are more complex, but after church last Sunday, uh, I was eating lunch and my wife uh, shared with me, uh, she usually gives me some sort of uh, feedback on the sermon afterwards, and she just said, well, that was, a, that was a pretty deep sermon last week, and she's like, I could see why some people uh, would have a hard time uh, following you on that one, and I said, well, it's interesting that you say that because the author of Hebrews is saying exactly that. Right after he finishes talking about that particular text, he interrupts his teaching on this particular theme for almost an entire chapter to say, I'd like to talk to you more about this, but you don't understand what I'm saying. That's pretty much the gist of what he's saying. It's not the only time in Scripture in which one of the apostles or one of the teachers explains that what they're saying is hard to understand. Not everything is simple in Scripture. Uh, we have the example in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, when the Apostle Peter is trying to explain to them something that the Apostle Paul has said, but he admits that there are some things that Paul says that are hard to understand. And he says the ignorant end up twisting those things because they don't 
understand them. But in our text this morning, the issue is not that there are some in the church who just aren't smart, but rather who aren't very mature. Uh, they, they looked as if they were just babes in Christ, even though they had been a part of the church for at least a decade or two. Somehow they had not grown up in their faith, and so they were not able to handle the Word of God in such a way that it would lend itself to understanding. There's a big difference, I think, uh, the Scripture points out, between a, a, having a childlike faith and having a childish faith. Uh, you can have a very mature believer that the Lord would commend for his childlike faith because he, he, he wants to believe and, and do exactly what God calls and commands him to do. But on the other hand, you can have a very experienced church member who is being admonished for having a childish faith because he looks more like a toddler in Christ than he does a full-grown adult. Uh, the 17th century English Puritan, his name is Ralph Venning. He's probably not as well known as some of the other Puritans. Uh, he wrote a book that I read uh, a number of years ago uh, called Learning in Christ School. And in that book, he, he talks about the different stages of, of, of faith. And he talks about the, the babes and then the toddlers and then the children and then the young adults, the young men, and then, and then the, uh, the older uh, people in, in, church, in the school of Christ, if you will. And he spends a really long chapter explaining what the faith of a babe looks like. And, and, and most of these things, they would make sense to us. He, he explains that mainly the, the, the babies in Christ, they live more by tradition than by the Word of God because they, they simply don't know the Word of God. So they have to live by tradition. And they love their traditions. They have a hard time giving those up. They also have a tendency to have a great zeal for the things of the Lord, but they have no idea why. In fact, they're often misguided in their zeal because they don't have enough of the Word of God to guide them. But then he also says they, they have a very difficult time being corrected. Uh, any type of reproof they hate immediately because they don't have the maturity to receive it by faith. But then he finally adds they also have a very hard time listening to any serious biblical exhortation. So in other words, they have a hard time listening to sermons where you actually talk about the Bible and not about anecdotes and stories and everything else because you have to have some basic knowledge in order to follow along, but also you have to have some desire to want to grow further in your knowledge of Christ, further in your knowledge of the ways of God. There's a traditional saying in the church that sometimes expresses how people feel uh, when uh, a preacher begins to preach. Uh, sometimes uh, they... they really like his preaching, especially if he speaks in generalities and, and gives them a bunch of stories and makes them feel pretty good about themselves. But when he begins to point out particular sins of theirs and gets a little bit more serious in his exhortation, uh, they no longer call it preaching, they call it meddling. Well, I'll give you an advance warning this morning. It's going to be a combination of preaching and meddling. But only because the author of Hebrews demands that it be so. That's what he's doing here. He's getting very particular and pointing out very specific sin that's hindering them from being able to follow along with his train of argument. So this morning, I, I want to give you, uh, basically summarize his arguments for you by pointing out four marks of a childish Christian. Um, I'm going to use uh, the same letter to begin with. Uh, it might be more uh, helpful, it might not. Um, Four marks of a childish Christian. First, 
He or she is an inattentive to hearing God's word, whether it's read or preached. Second, they're incompetent in handling God's word for themselves. Third, they're intolerant of studying God's word much at all. And fourth, they're indiscriminate in applying God's word to real life situations. So let's start with the first one, inattentiveness in hearing God's word. As I mentioned already in verse 11, the author states that he has much to say about the priesthood of Christ, but he can't really explain much more because they have a hard time hearing. He says, you have become dull of hearing. Again, it's not the fact that they're not smart people. Uh, literally, he's saying that they're lazy people. The, the word dull that's, that's used in the Greek there, the very next chapter, uh, chapter 6, he uses it, and it's translated as sluggishness. They are lazy hearers. They are sluggish hearers. Uh, they don't want to put any work into paying attention to what's being said because it's not easily sliding off the lips and easily gliding into the ear. It's something that they have to pay careful attention to what they're hearing. In fact, the author of Hebrews has already said, pay careful attention to what you hear. He's already said that earlier on in this epistle. Now he's stating it again. Well, the story is told of Franklin Roosevelt. For those who are more childish, I have to add some more illustrations to bring it back in. Um, the, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was bemoaning the fact in the White House he'd have really long lines. And he'd have all these people shake his hands, and, and he hated the fact that no one really ever had a real conversation. No one really listened to what he said. And, and no one listened to what they were saying. And, and so he, he began to do an experiment as they went along down the line. Every person that he greeted, he would shake their hand, and he would say to them, I murdered my grandmother this morning. He shook about 100 hands, and out of the 100 people who shook his hand, they said something like, that's marvelous. Great work. Keep up the work. You know, keep up the good work. We're so proud of you. God bless you, sir. Those were the responses he was getting until finally the ambassador from Bolivia uh, had, had actually listened to what he was saying because, you know, different language, he's paying more careful attention uh, to what Roosevelt was saying. Nonplussed, he leaned over and whispered to Roosevelt and said, I'm sure she had it coming, sir. <laughs> well, today's preachers are in good company. If you look throughout the whole history of the Old Testament, every prophet was bemoaning the fact that the people of God would not listen to what he's saying. In fact, what did they want to do? They wanted to kill all the prophets because they did not want to listen to what the preacher was saying. When we get to Jesus, you would think it'd be different, but it's not. Most people who came to hear Jesus preach listened to him only because they knew that they were going to get bread and fish, and when they didn't get it, they were upset. When he began to speak something harder to them, they all left. John 6, read that really long chapter, get to the end, you'll see most of the people left him when he began to talk about the more serious, weighty matters. They didn't want to hear it. They wanted to be entertained, they wanted to be fed, and they wanted it to be easy. On the other hand, the believers in Troas could not get enough of the Word of God. One of the cities that the Apostle Paul stopped in to preach to them, he knew he didn't have much time. He knew that the very next morning he was going to have to get on a ship and go to the next town. And so evening worship service, Sunday night, this is literally, it was Sunday night worship, they actually came, first of all. But when they came, he began to preach probably around seven-ish. He went till midnight. They were still listening. 
Some of their bodies began to get tired, and if you remember one young man named Eutychus sitting in the window falls three stories to his death because he fell asleep because his body was so worn out, probably working all day, and, you know, that's really bad news. <laughs> you don't want to die listening to a sermon. Uh, but the good news is the Apostle Paul, by the power of the Spirit, was able to go down there and raise the man back to life, which he did. And then what did he do after that? They all went back upstairs to the third floor, and he preached till dawn. From 7 at night till 7 in the morning. They couldn't get enough of the preaching. So I'm going to go on really long today. No, I don't plan to at all. In fact, again, the writer of Hebrews is pointing out to them at the end of the epistle, Hebrews 13, he appeals to them, he, he, he pleads with them. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have spoken very briefly. Listen. It's a very short sermon in that sense. But it's interesting, even the words that he uses, bear with my word of exhortation. The word bear with means literally to hold yourself up so as not to fall out the window, so as not to fall asleep, so as not to be distracted, so as not to lose attention. Uh, listening to a sermon is not very much like watching television at all. It takes some mental exercise. You have to want to pay attention or you won't. You will eventually get lost. I was telling someone the other day that uh, every aspect of the worship service requires some exercise on our part. Even though you're sitting at the moment, there's exercise that is required of you. Every time we sing, you have to pay attention to what you're singing. You have to use your heart and your lungs and your voice to give praise unto God. When we're praying together, you have to pay attention to what's being prayed and pray along with uh, the pastor who's, who's praying over you. In the same way, we're, we're giving and we're praising and we're, we're, we're afterwards we're seeking to edify and encourage one another in the body of Christ. It takes effort on our part. It's not just a, a day to relax and just sit here. In fact, this piece of paper, uh, most people, when I hold this up, will say, that's the bulletin, right? The bulletin is what provides news and information for our church, Right? Makes perfect sense. But when you open up the bulletin and you get to that first or second page where it actually talks about what's going on during the worship service, there's a different word for that, and that's the word liturgy. It's probably not a word that you use as often as you use the word bulletin. The word liturgy comes from the Greek, latergos. I know I've explained this at least three times before, but I'm going to explain it again. What does the word latergos mean? Work. This is not... Pastor Mark's job today and my job today, this is not our work. This is your work with us. You are called to work today. You're not called to do your ordinary work. Your ordinary work you're supposed to set aside so that you can concentrate on the work of worship today. Uh, we have been putting out the, uh, the hymns and the songs that we're going to sing each Sunday in advance uh, expecting that every person here would have already sung them at home, ready to sing today. I'm, we're not really expecting that, but hoping. We give you the Word of God in advance so that you can read it in advance, so that you can be prepared to at least know the train of thought of what the writer of Hebrews is saying, so that when I'm trying to explain some of his points, you're not lost. There's preparation involved. 
even in our prayers. There, there, there's a, a sense of which I'm asking God, Lord, help me to be a part of this. Help me to benefit from this. Help me to add my voice to this. Help me to add my voice to, to the praise. Well, it's the same way when you're listening to a, a sermon. There's work involved, but the problem is childish Christians don't want to work. They don't want to listen. They don't want to have any mental exercise at all. They want to love God with their heart, but they don't want to love him with their mind. That's childish. Then secondly, he says, in addition to being inattentive to hearing the word, they're also incompetent in handling God's word. Verse 12, the author says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. I'll tell you, in every church I've ever been in, I've been in a number of churches, any church that I've been in for a lengthy period of time, I've always seen someone who's been a part of the church for 30 years or more. Who still has those tabs in their Bible to tell them where to find the books of the Bible? Now, follow along with what I'm trying to say here. Um, uh, all the musicians that were up here this morning. Say you had a musician for 30 years playing the violin and they still have the tape on the neck to tell you where you put your fingers. You would think, that person doesn't practice. Or someone playing the piano, and they have to write the letters on each key to make sure that they don't miss the note. I, I looked over there just to make sure Rose didn't have letters on the keys. You don't need that if you spent time practicing. If you don't know where the books of the Bible are and you've been in the church for 30, 40 years, I tell you, without a doubt, you are a childish Christian. You ought to know the Word of God that long. But it's not just those who don't know it as far as being able to recognize where the books of the Bible are. It's those who, who, who can't understand any of the doctrines beyond the very basics. They, they understand something of salvation. They might understand something of faith and repentance. But beyond that, they have no clue. They have no idea. All of the rich treasures of God's Word, they have no concept. And if you start to use any theological explanation, they check out immediately. He says, he talks about the basic principles in this, in this passage. They, they can't get beyond the basic principles. That's a very common term in, in, in Greek language. Um, every subject has basic principles, has uh, basic truths or axioms upon which all truth is built upon. And so on the one hand, you have uh, Euclid's geometry, a very famous ancient guy who, who was well known for his geometrical theorems. And he would always teach from the basic principle. Here are the basic truths, and then he would establish hundreds and hundreds of propositions and theories based upon the basics. But you had to know the basics to follow along in his geometry. In the same way, Aristotle would use all of these syllogisms that you had to know the basic principles in order to follow along with, work, with his argument. He would you know, give something like, he would say, all men are mortal, basic principle. He would say, Socrates is a man, basic principle. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. 
It's a truth that's based upon these basic principles. Even our concept of language, the, the, the words that we speak are based upon the principles of the letters of the alphabet. They're basics we have to understand, but we have to be able to get beyond that. If all we understand is the basics, we're not growing up in our faith. These childish Christians might be able to say something about salvation, something about faith and repentance, but he's trying to explain to them the riches of Christ's priesthood on their behalf, and they can't follow him. They don't want to follow him. They just want to know that they're saved, and that's it. So because of that, they're not willing to hear when he talks about how Jesus propitiates the wrath of God, or how he supplicates the compassion of God, or how he consummates and mediates the works of God on their behalf. If you don't understand what I'm saying, I purposely use bigger words. But these are words that are used in Scripture that many people don't know because they don't know how to handle the Word of God. Rather than teaching and being teachers, as he says here, there are very experienced church men and women who have to be taught again and again, and yet they don't want to be taught. They like being childish. You know, in the PCA, um, to be a pastor, you, you have to pass a, a, a decent-sized Bible competency exam, Bible content exam. And it's always fun watching the young men squirm as they have to answer all of these questions about different verses from all over the place. And, and none of us know it perfectly, but hopefully we have a good grasp of it. We have to rightly divide the Word of God. To do that, we have to know where stuff is. You can't be a pastor unless you pass that exam. Could you imagine if we had a Bible competency exam for the average church member? That'd be a different matter altogether. Why? Because we, we don't want to grow up in our faith. We're, we're very content being childish. Then third, in addition to being inattentive to hearing God's Word and, and being incompetent to handle God's Word, he says that they're also intolerant of studying God's Word. Unlike the Bereans, again, in Acts chapter 17, everything that Paul said, they not only read it for themselves, keep in mind these people didn't have their own Bibles, they went to the synagogue every day to study the Scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was right and comparing with what Paul said to what they knew to be true. But the writer of Hebrews is saying that they're not willing to study at all. They're, they're not even capable of studying it. Verse 12 and 13, he says to them, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Again, it's not that they don't have teeth to chew. They do. They just choose to drink the milk instead because it's so easy. Instead of being lactose intolerant, they're non-lactose intolerant. They can only tolerate the milk. They cannot tolerate the meat. The Apostle Paul says the same thing to the believers in Corinth, at least a section of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as a people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you're not ready. Why is that? Because they're so intolerant of theology. They're so intolerant of learning who God is, learning who they are in light of who God is. 
it's, it's a shame. It really is. Uh, back in 1995, uh, if you've never read it before, it's a pretty fascinating book. Mark Knoll is a church historian, particularly for the United States. He wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And in the very first chapter, he explains, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. They don't think. They don't have a Christian worldview. They think very similar to the pagans. They have no concept of how to integrate their faith with their work. They have no concept of how to integrate their faith at home. They have no concept of what it means to actually live as a Christian. They know that they have their ticket to heaven, but that's all they know. They don't want anything more than that. And, and you, know, you know that's true. All you have to do is look up sermon series online. I always find this interesting. Um, you know, most of the sermons here as we do here are either a direct exposition of a book or, or something thematically or topically based upon different uh, issues that we find in Scripture. Um, nowadays, most churches... The, the sermon series that the pastors choose have nothing to do with the scriptural theme necessarily, but they'll be like sermons on how to be happy, but not using the, the Beatitudes. Sermons on how to be real. Sermons on how to win in the game of life. What does that even mean? Just type into your search and you'll see. It's, it's, it's a bunch of drivel. It's all it is. I, I used to work at a Christian bookstore, I know. When I was uh, just finishing up seminary, I started working in a Christian bookstore, and it was one that sold everything, all different types of books from different authors. There was no consistency as far as uh, what people believed or not. But when I was there, I was always trying to recommend people to go to a certain section where they'd actually get something good. Uh, but no, they wanted to go to the stuff that was completely empty and worthless and all of the above, over and over and over again. Uh, I found today even that in the average Christian bookstore, they no longer even have a theology section because they know nobody wants to read about it. In other words, they don't want to learn about God. They want to learn about everything else. <laughs> uh, so the average book today is some sort of self-help Christian book or it's a book that has a catchy title that was just released in a movie recently or, more than likely, it's some Amish romance novel. Here we go. Someone please tell me what is up with Amish romance novels. I don't get it. 30 million Amish romance novels have been sold in the last two decades to Christians to the point now that in the public library, they have books in a Christian section. The greatest subgenre is Amish romance novels because that's what they think we all read. That's what they think is Christianity, Amish romance novels. Please stop donating Amish romance novels to our church library. We tossed out at least 50 of them. I love you guys. No more Amish romance novels. There's a reason why not even Amish people read Amish romance novels. It goes against every theological aspect of what they believe they would consider heresy for you to write an Amish romance novel. 
Not only that, but it's complete fantasy, not based in any way on reality of anything. And believe me, I know because my wife, my mother-in-law, lived in Lancaster for much of their lives, where most of these books supposedly have been taking place. There's not a whole lot of Amish romance going on. It's not. I don't know why we keep calling this Christian. You're not learning how to grow in your faith by reading Amish romance novels. It's just not going to happen that way. But you can tell a lot about people's desires by what they read. Instead of reading something, they would actually tell them, who is this God that I worship? They want to read anything else but that. So as we've been trying to update the library, we, we tossed out some and, and sold some others and have been purchasing some new ones. And uh, Lee, Lee Thorne here in the front row is, uh, you can blame him for all the new purchases. No, we, we, we collectively have been uh, partners in crime. A couple weeks, we're going to have a bunch of books out here in the foyer on the bookshelves that are recommended for you to read. Lee and I both are apprehensive that you won't want to read the good ones. Here's why. In our church library, out of all the books on the shelves, any book that had anything to do with anything of substance, no one ever checked out. Very rarely. All the Amish romance novels were checked out. Why? Childish Christians are bored by theology. They don't want to grow up in their faith. They don't know how to handle God's Word. In fact, they're intolerant of studying it. Fourth, in, in addition to these things, they're also indiscriminate in applying God's Word. Verse 14, the author says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's been said many times, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. In other words, good doctrine leads to good practice. But if you don't have good doctrine, what does it lead to? Heresy. Deception. Being led away from the faith of Christ altogether. Ephesians 4, verse 14, Paul's concerned that there are some in the church who are children, he says, like children you are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by every deceitful scheme, because you have not grown up in your faith, you have not grown up in your knowledge of who God is. And I'll tell you, you know this to be true, I know this to be true, because I've seen it hundreds of times in every church I've been in, where youth have gone to college and have been exposed to every false philosophy on the planet. And it doesn't take long. They're tossed back and forth by the ways they have no idea how to handle themselves according to God's Word. They have no idea because they've never grown up in their faith. They've never got beyond, I have a ticket to heaven. I'm trying to be a good person, and I hope maybe one day I'll hook up with some Amish guy or gal. <laughs> if that's what we're teaching, if that's what we're all about. How in the world are we ever going to prepare our kids unless we teach them theology? And how are we going to teach them any aspect of theology unless we desire it ourselves? We desire to grow in our knowledge of God. The average youth today is not even reading books. They're getting their theology almost entirely from the web. 
And that's very dangerous because they're getting it from any random person on the planet. Most of them are probably sinister and deceptive. I can tell you there's a, a number of these now that are popping up left and right. There's one particular um, group, I won't tell you their names, uh, but it's basically previous youth pastors who now are atheists or at least agnostics. And their whole premise is to deconstruct the faith of your youth. Deconstruct the faith of your children and your grandchildren to lead them away from faith in Christ and to freedom from religion. Freedom from the binding commands of God. Freedom from a sense of oppression. That's how they'll, they'll phrase these things. And we're seeing that many youth are... are are falling into this trap because all they see of Christianity is a moral law book. They have no concept of the gospel. They have no idea of the love of God in Christ Jesus, of the good news of the grace of God who frees us from all of our sins and who frees us from the condemnation of the law, and who gives us a new desire to see the goodness and the wisdom and the beauty of God's law, they have no concept of that. And so when they come into an average classroom that's just constantly berating anything Christian, then it is. It's, it's simply compared to some sort of Amish cult. That's what most people think of the church today. Why? Because they have no idea how to apply the Word. They have no idea how to apply it to their lives. All they've ever learned, Jesus died for my sin, I try to be a good person, et cetera, et cetera. What is the goal? What are we trying to accomplish? Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. If you've never read it before, you've not heard it before, listen very carefully. This is why we preach. Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom why, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We preach every Sunday so that you would grow up in your faith and not be a child any longer. We're not preaching to amuse you. We're not preaching to entertain you. We're preaching that you would know the love of Christ and how that enables you then to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, J.I. Packer, I, I love the quote. I'm, I'm always wrecking it, but he, he said, you know, you know, our job as preachers is not to entertain the goats, but to feed the sheep. The sheep want to learn. They want to mature. They want to grow up. How are they going to do that? They're only going to get that through the Word and through the, the deep parts of the Word. We have to give that to them. Romans 12, verse 2, how do you, how do you grow up in your faith? Paul says, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world. In other words, stop thinking like the world around you does. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He said, if you want to grow up and you want to know how to apply God's Word, you have to let the Word of God transform you. Transform your mind. It's not just an emotional experience. It's something where you have to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. How else are we going to do that? By reading God's Word, praying to God, 
oh Lord, I want to know you. Help me to know you by reading your word. The sons of God will never be perfected by childish pursuits. We waste so much time on childish pursuits and not learning to grow up in the faith. But is that even something that you desire? So that's the question. So I can just, I can just condemn you now and just say, guys, go read your Bible and stop acting like big babies. That's just a legalistic sermon. I'm happy to give it to you. But if you don't have the desire to grow, there's something wrong. Either you haven't understood the gospel, you haven't understood the love of God in Christ. Or somehow you still think that you, you have to do this to earn something from God. I'm not telling you to read your Bible to earn something from God. I'm not telling you to read your Bible just so you can one-up someone else in the church and show that you have more Bible knowledge than they. I'm telling you to read your Bible because in reading your Bible, that's how you come to know Christ. If you don't read the Bible, you'll never know Christ. It's not, about, it's not a rule book. It's a book that tells you who he is. It's a biography about Christ. You have to read it to know who he is. Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 3, in his high priestly prayer, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you want to know what eternal life is? It's not a ticket to heaven. It's knowing God, knowing Christ. So a good question to ask yourself is, how well do I know him? Do I want to know him? And if not, why not? What is it in the world that you want to know so much more about? What is it that you desire so much more than Christ that you treasure all these things but not treasuring the Word of God, that you're willing to sustain great effort and attention on so many other things but not upon the Scriptures? Literally the way the writer of Hebrews is putting it, for those who aren't growing up in the faith, he he really is almost making fun of them. He's he's saying they they look like they're adults crawling around on their hands and legs and drinking from a baby bottle. He's saying that's not the way it should be. On the other hand, those who want to know Christ, they will love His Word. Because that's where they're going to get to know him. Listen to what Paul says, and I'm going to close with this. Uh, In our devotional readings this week in Philippians uh, chapter 3, Paul says this. Well, earlier on in chapter 1, he says, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. But then in chapter 3, he says this. Indeed, I count everything as loss, as worthless, as trash, as a dung heap, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, for, for his sake I've suffered the loss of everything else, count it all as worthless, in order that I might know Christ, that I might gain Christ, that I might be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Why? And here's, here's, here's ultimately why, the why to this whole thing. He says, so that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible, I too might attain the resurrection from the dead. He says, I want to know him. I really want to know him. I I, I encourage you, 
if nothing else, and you didn't get anything else, make that the, the prayer this week. To read God's Word, oh Lord, may I know you. Help me to know you. To, to work in my heart the desire to get to know you. That I might grow up in my faith and not, not continue to act like this anymore. Expecting everyone else to feed me and I can't feed myself. That's not what it's meant to be. The Lord has better plans for us because he loves us. And if he loves us, he's going to love us to the end. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help. Uh, some of us are more studious than others. Some of us might think we're smarter than others. Some of us uh, might be natural readers. Uh, other of us may not be. But Lord, we know that uh, many of us are better at evangelism. Others, others of us are are better socially and, and, uh, and doing good works of, of faith. Lord, we, we all need help in all of these areas. We're weak in many areas, but Lord, help us not to be weak in our knowledge of you. Lord, help us not to be ineffective in our knowledge of the gospel. Help us not to be incompetent. Father, we, we pray that we would not be bored by your word to be bored by sermons. Help us to grow up in our salvation, we pray in Christ's name.